night, good morning, Watermark. Who is ready to talk about politics and religion? You excited? Man. Welcome to our series, our interlude into 1 Timothy, where we're going to talk about, uh, about, yeah, politically correct. What does it mean? What's a biblical perspective on God and on government? And our task in this series is going to be to help us dive into God's word so that we might be better equipped to understand how does God thinks how does God think about topics that are relevant to the election that's coming up here in a couple of weeks and frankly how does God think about topics that are relevant for years and years and decades to come I think that as we get our arms around topics like citizenship and life and marriage and immigration religious liberties and others we will be more prepared to vote biblically in an imperfect system in a way that honors Christ. And so I want to remind everybody, this is a church. If you know Jesus Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ. And so we are going to point ourselves back to God's word. Hopefully we're doing that all the time. But sometimes when you get into a series like this, talk about politics, we tend to deviate away from God's word. And I think God's word is plenty enough sufficient to get us where we need to be on this election cycle. And here's what I'm excited about. I I think that as we remind each other of some of these foundational truths, I want to say that as we wrap our brains around this and our hearts around this, it should produce in us an increase of security, of peace, of joy, regardless of who's president. We can expect that, that the peace of Christ, which is promised to those who know Jesus, will continue to overwhelm and overflow our hearts. We won't need to be ruled by fear and anxiety and stress. So if you walked into this room this morning or if you're listening online or you're in one of the overflow rooms and you walked in feeling a little heavy about this whole political season, if, you, if there's anxiety in your heart, I am, I'm so excited because I think as we dive in, God's going to give us the peace that I know he desires for all of us. So as we jump in this morning to week one of this three-week interlude, Uh, I want us to be transformed and to be reminded of what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven. Because God's word teaches that when we come under the authority of Jesus Christ, he becomes our new king. And Jesus as king has with him a kingdom. And as a part of that kingdom, there is a certain ethic or a certain way we should live our lives as a part of that kingdom. And when we embrace the way that God has called us to live, then it should set us free from the anxiety and the stress and the fear that is just overwhelming our nation. We're going to look at a lot of Bible this morning. And I don't want you to be fret if you can't keep up. We'll put all of the verses and other resources in the sermon guide that we'll push out this week in The Current, which is our weekly email to our members or, uh, and then through our social media channels. And so don't, don't stress out if you're not getting every, every verse. We'll get it to you. First, as we get going, I want to unpack what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? And once we unpack that, then there'll be some other questions that flow naturally. But the first thing we've got to make sure we understand is what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? And the first thing I want to touch on is that means you serve a new king. We pledge our allegiance not to a flag, but to the covenant God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit. We confess confess that he is sovereign over every square inch of this land that we call America. 
You guys might have remembered the story in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that guy who got in the lion's den? So Daniel uh, was a Jew who was living in a foreign land for a while. He'd been taken to a foreign land, and he was interpreting some dreams. And he's about to interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And before Daniel walks into the palace to have this discussion with Nebuchadnezzar, he says in Daniel 2, 20 to 21, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and insight. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The king we serve is sovereign and God's word makes no bones about it. It pulls no punches. It's not apologetic. God owns who is an authority on earth. Paul would pick this thing up in Romans 13. Paul wrote that let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And God's um, putting a leader in place does not equal God's endorsement of that leader. But be clear, Scripture owns, you want to know who's responsible for kings? You want to know who's responsible for presidents? It's God. And by the way, most of your New Testament, all of your New Testament, and most of your Old Testament was written to people who were not living in a, in a republic where there's a democracy. They were living under a king or in the New Testament, a Caesar who at the whim could decide, you know what, your life is over, game over. That's the context that your Bible is written under, not into a, in the context that we live where we get to go cast a vote. And because we serve this sovereign king, we no longer bow down to the gods of this world. We have pledged our allegiance to King Jesus. And so your husband and your wife, or maybe your desire for a husband and wife, ceases to be your God. Your career, what you want to do with your life, ceases to be your God. Your bank accounts, your 401k accounts, cease to be your God. Your hope in this country ceases to be your God. We renounce all previous allegiances and we count them as dead so that we can follow King Jesus. And Jesus, when he walked on the earth, he was having a conversation with his disciples and he looked at his disciples and said, listen, in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So part of being a citizen of heaven is acknowledging, I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. I have a new king. And as I mentioned, that king has a kingdom. So when you're brought to the place where you see King Jesus as good and as kind and as compassionate and as having dealt with your biggest issue, which is your sin issue, then you become, by faith, a member, a citizen of his kingdom, which means you are no longer, you're no longer, I'm no longer a part of this temporal earthly kingdom. So uh, when I renewed my passport recently, so here's my passport, uh, I had to renew it. I sent it off, and they sent it back to me, and they cut off the edges of my passport. I guess they think if you want to keep your cool stamps, whatever, uh, maybe this goes in your scrapbook. 
um, but they cut off the corners so that I can never use this passport again to get in and to get out of this country. They would say, if I tried to show up at Border Patrol, hey, that passport is not any good. It no longer serves the function that it one did. And in the same way, we have been transferred. The passport that we carried as a non-believer, if you know Jesus, has been cut up. Paul says to the church in Colossae that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of this earth. We've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that old passport we used to carry to get around has been cut up. It is no longer any good. So you're a part of a new kingdom. And when you're a part of a new kingdom, serving a new king, that king in his kingdom has a certain ethic, a certain way he expects his kingdom people to behave. And so you have a new king, you have a new kingdom, and you have a new kingdom perspective. We no longer feel the need to fit in or to mix in with our old way of life, with our old passport holders. We indeed are strangers in a strange land. And the whole trajectory of our life ought to pivot. Peter writes to the Christians who are dispersed all over the Roman world in 1 Peter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These passions wage war against your soul. You should keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who don't know God. That's what it means. You should keep your conduct among them as honorable. Why? So that when they speak up against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation, on the day when Jesus comes back. And so listen, sojourners and exiles, that may not be like just one of the words that's in your dialogue on a daily basis. That just means we're here temporarily. This is not a permanent move. And I cannot overemphasize this enough. If you have come to know and trust in Jesus, America is not your home. The world is not your home. We're just here temporarily. And so you ought to feel a bit out of place. You ought to look around and be like, man, I just, I mean, it's not bad, but it just doesn't feel like I'm home. My wife and I had a chance to go to Switzerland for our 20th wedding anniversary a few years back. And boy, howdy. I'm ready for Watermark Switzerland. Who's with me? <laughs> but let me just let you know, we had a great time there. But in the back of my mind, I knew this isn't home. Like, we're going to get on a plane, sadly, and we're going to go back to 120-degree heat in Texas. Um, and, and, and so it didn't diminish our ability to enjoy while we were there, but we were not confused. We had no confusion. Not once did we think, oh, man, this is home for us, because we knew it wasn't. And look, your identity, if that's true, and that, that is true, by the way, that's what Scripture teaches, that, that you are no longer a citizen of earth. Your passport's been cut up. And if that's true then our identity is not found whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not found whether you're a Texan or a Californian or a Virginian. It's not, your identity is not tied to whether you're black or white, to whether you're male or female, to whether you're a CEO of a company or a barista. If you're a Christ follower, your identity is you are a Christ follower. That's your primary identity. And we have so much, I've had, I've personally been involved in so many conversations with friends within this body where there's anxiety 
And there's panic. And there's fear. There's been loss of sleep over this election. And I just, I don't know, some of you may be walking in here feeling that same thing too. And I just want to remind you, I want to lovingly, I want to clearly acknowledge that when you're led by those feelings, when you allow those feelings to drive you, it makes people think that you think that America is your home. And America is not our home. And when we do that, it is confusing to the watching world to whom we are to keep our conduct honorable, as Peter said. When we say we serve a king, we say we serve a king who's sovereign over every square inch of this land. We say that there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We just read that in Romans. But we live as though everything sacred in our life depends on the outcome of this election. That's confusing. That's confusing to a lost world. And it makes our God, who again, we say is sovereign, it makes him look like he's not who he says he is. Because our anxiety and our panic and our backbiting on these topics they betray our confession because we say that God is sovereign. But the way we live says something different, and we minimize God. So if you know Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Your passport to the domain of darkness has been cut up. It is no longer any good, and this is not your home. And so once we understand that, hopefully we understand that better or we've been reminded better, then we can go on to answer three questions. How does a citizen of heaven relate to a worldly government? How does a citizen of heaven relate to the lost? And how does a citizen of heaven relate to other citizens of heaven? So one, how do citizens of heaven relate to worldly governments? So fortunately, uh, God's word is really clear here. And so uh, we have several examples in the Old Testament and in New Testament's clear as well. But let's look at the Old Testament example. So God sent the nation of Israel into exile, which he said he was gonna do if, he, if they disobeyed. Um, God said, hey, the last step of discipline for you will be that I'm going to take you from the land I promised you, and I'm going to put you in a foreign land. And that happened in your Bible. And so Jeremiah, when God did that, God raised up a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote a letter to Israel's leadership and to their people to remind them and to instruct them that, hey, you're going to be away from the promised land for a while. So let me give you some guidance on how you ought to behave in this land that is not your home that you're here temporarily. So here's what Jeremiah says. Actually, here's what God says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, let me just real quick, as we dive into this, let me just, again, because uh, I know we don't live in an exile. Like, we're not used to using those terms, exile and sojourner. So let me just, uh, so Israel was conquered by Babylon. Babylon went to the nation, and they said, hey, we're going to take the best and brightest of the nation of Israel. We're going to pluck them out of wherever they are in Israel, and we're going to take them back to Babylon. And they're going to serve away from home the, the, the Babylonian Empire. Now, imagine that Canada, our friendly neighbors to the north, let's imagine they decided they're going to come and invade the USA. That would, be, that would be odd, but let's just, we're having fun here. And they come down and they conquer our land. 
okay? And they take over. And they go through America, and they say, hey, we're going to take the best and brightest of America. Uh, most of those are actually we found in Texas. So we're going to take those guys and those women, and we're going to take them back to the capital of Canada, which is, anybody know the capital of Canada is? Ottawa. Well done, my friends. We're going to take you back to Ottawa. And so we go to Ottawa, the best and brightest. I'm actually probably left here, but those of you that are in the top get to go to Ottawa, or are taken to Ottawa, rather. And you're there in Ottawa, and you're there, like Daniel was, and you feel a bit out of place. You're not excited about being there because it's wicked cold. They watch a lot of hockey, a lot of hockey. They're super passionate about maple syrup. There is no good brisket anywhere to be found. They say, eh, a whole bunch, and they're really nice people. Can you imagine how out of sorts you'd be if that was where you had been forcibly moved? That's what's going on in the Old Testament. And yet the Lord told the Jews that had been moved to Babylon, he's telling those Americans that had been moved to Ottawa, hey, you need to seek the welfare of the city in which I have sent you into exile, which is the first thing that God calls his citizens of heaven to do with a worldly government. We are to seek the welfare of the city. God told them that, that's what they were to do. And the way we do that in America currently, we've got a couple ways we can do that. One is we get a chance to vote. This is one of the few places in the world throughout all of human history. Okay, do you realize that? Throughout all of human history, this is one of the few places where we get a chance to cast a vote for our leadership. And I understand that the system isn't perfect and that corruption exists within the system, but we should still participate in trying to put men and women who will lead through a biblical worldview into positions of leadership. And so what do you do if you don't like your choices? Come back next week. Come back in week three. We'll put some resources in the, water, in the uh, sermon guide to help answer that question. So one of the ways we seek the welfare of the city that we are currently in exile is we vote. And if you're a Christian and you are over 18, then you should expect that one of the ways you serve the city is by voting to put men and women who will promote a biblical worldview into leadership. And we'll talk about why that's important in a sec. The second thing that we ought to be doing to seek the welfare of the city that we live in is to speak up to protect the weak and the vulnerable. As God's people, seeking the welfare of the city must absolutely include caring for and speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves, those who are on the margin. Because a city will never be greater than its weakest citizens, Okay. This country will never be greater than the weakest members of this country. And in our country today, there are no more weak, there are no more vulnerable than those that are in the womb. And we have been crystal clear at this body for two decades, we've been crystal clear that God values life in the womb and God values life outside the womb. When it comes to abortion, we ought to be doing everything we can do to put an end to that practice. And let me just, before I go any further, let me just pause for a second. Because I know in a room like this or those that may be joining us online, there may be women in this room who have had an abortion. There may be men who have participated in that decision. And I want you to hear me say as clearly as I can, we love you. God's not mad at you. There is no scarlet letter in the body of Christ. Nothing you have ever done is going to separate you or pull you away from God's free gift of salvation. 
Paul says in Romans that there is no condemnation, none, zero, nil. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what your story is. And so if you are here and that's a part of your story, we have a ministry designed to serve you and to love you and to encourage you and to help you heal from that decision. And so we should pray. We should come alongside women who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies or who are recovering from the pain of an abortion. We should pray for those within the medical community who are providing abortion services, doctors and staff. And we should seek to elect officials who will put an end to abortion. Church, we need to move into this space with clarity, with conviction, and with love, and with grace, and with tenderness. And those in the womb are not just the only ones on the fringe. We, also, we ought to also care for other people that are vulnerable and weak. Being pro-life is about so much more than just abortion. God calls his people to care for people from the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And so we should be advocating for those in the foster system, both kids that are in there and parents who have lost their children to the system because of things they've done as we help them move towards restoration. We should advocate for and elect officials who will take special care of those with special needs, those who are impacted by incarceration, those who suffer discrimination because of their race or their gender, those who are trapped in cycles of poverty and homelessness, those who don't have the same opportunity as some of us to be educated, those who are immigrants to this land who are fleeing places where they're being persecuted or are looking to come here to get a better shot at this 70 to 80 years on earth, those who don't have good access to medical care, the elderly of our community that have been left largely alone and isolated. And I want you to know, I thank God for this place. Because I hear people say all the time that all Christians believe about is life in the womb. And I could not disagree more with this body, the way you have loved and cared and served, not just those who are in the womb, but outside of the womb. And the way families have jumped into the foster system and into the adoption system, those who are trying to help parents get their, their kids back, the way we love and engage the homeless in our city, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, the way we're serving and educating those who are in prison and on and on and on. I could not be more proud of this body, to be a part of this church with you. And again, it's, it's been a while since we've said this from the stage, so I'll just throw it in now because I got the mic. If you know somebody or if you have found yourself in an unexpected pregnancy, we want you to know. We want to come alongside you and help you process that decision and what the next best steps are. And if you decide that the next best step for you as a woman, is to mother that child. And we want to come alongside you and help you do everything you can do to mother and parent that child for as long as God gives them to you. And if you decide, hey, I think the next best step for me would be to uh, uh, place this child for adoption, we also want to come alongside you. And we want to help you find a godly couple who will raise that kid to understand the value and the dignity of their life and the value and the dignity of their biological mother and father's life. We've always said that, and we will continue to say that. Your next best step may be to raise your hand and say, I'm not sure what my next best step is. Can you help me? And then I want to remind us that you and I cannot do it all. There's this narrative going around that if you're not doing, if you're not doing something about everything, then somehow you're failing in your faith. And I just want you to know that's not true. 
That's not biblical. The body of Christ is broad enough that when the members are all doing what they ought to be doing, what God calls them to do, that the needs just, they'll get taken care of. So figure out what is it you're passionate about? What is it you're good at? What has your experience given you? And then go dive into that world. For, for Missy and myself, it was, it was adoption. We got excited about that, I don't know, 13 years ago. And for us, that was the place we jumped in. And it has been awesome for us to get to serve in this body in that capacity. And there are others of you that are super passionate about the prison system and about homelessness and about on and on and on. And so don't feel like you've got to do everything. Just figure out what you're good at, what you're excited about, how God's gifted you. And then go be salt and light in there and trust that God will raise up other members of the body to fill in the gaps. Two, uh, so we're supposed to seek the wealth for the city. And then God says, pray to the Lord on its, on the city of your exile's behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. This means that we are to be on our knees begging God for the welfare of the city that we're in. And can I just tell you, that is convicting. Because if we're honest, isn't it easier just to complain and to whine and to throw a political sign in your front yard than it is to do the hard work of praying for our nation, for our state leadership, and for our local city leadership? God is not looking for us, by the way, to pray that somehow this place of exile would feel more home. That's not what we pray for. We pray for kings and all who are in authority, which is what we taught two weeks ago, David and Marvin did. As Paul, uh, uh, what's his name? Paul, as Paul said, that we may lead peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. Because when the rulers, when the rulers of a land lead biblically, its citizens thrive and prosper. That's what we pray for. Because as Jeremiah said, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So you want life on this temporary vacation we're in here called Earth in America. You want it to go better. Pray for your leaders. Not just the, the president and the others that are being nominated, but state, city, local. Pray for the elders of this church. Because as it goes well with them, it will go well for you. So as citizens of heaven, we should actively seek the welfare of the city we live in, regardless of who's president. Two, how do citizens of heaven relate to the lost? One, you should remember that there is an eternal gap between those who are in the domain of darkness and those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, he's reminding them that he himself is pressing on to greater and greater uh, love and affection for Jesus Christ. And, so, and he wants them to as well. So he writes in Philippians 3, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, and our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. There is an eternal difference between those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and those who are citizens of heaven. We serve different kings, we live in different kingdoms, and we have different priorities. So we don't need to be fearful or anxious as this country continues to devolve into godlessness, okay? Our lost neighbors don't look at life through the same set of lenses that we do, so we shouldn't be surprised when they advocate for legislation that's going to lead to death and destruction. Don't let that surprise you. Don't let that drive you to a place of fear. 
when they try to roll back our religious liberties, don't be fearful. There's an eternal difference between citizens of the domain of darkness and citizens of heaven. John um, in, uh, records Jesus in John 15. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, guys, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were a part of the domain of darkness, the world would love you as its own. Come on, come be a part of it. But because you're not of this world, because your passport's been snipped up, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, which some of them did, they'll kept yours as well. Paul picks up the same thing in 2 Timothy 2 as he's sharing with Timothy about all the persecutions that Paul endured. And boy, howdy, Paul endured some persecutions. And he writes to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I've shared with you all about what I've suffered. And I want you to be aware, buddy, if you follow Jesus, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if that weren't enough, Evil people and impostors are going to go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So let me just ask us a question. If we look around at our lives and nobody's persecuting us and nobody hates us, are we maybe a little too at home in America? Are we a little bit too comfortable with this temporary land? So we need to, one, we relate to the loss by first remembering there's an eternal difference in the way we look at life. But two, we remember that in spite of those eternal differences, all humanity is made in the image of God. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And so all humanity, even those that are lost, bears the image of God. And that image may be defaced, sometimes significantly, but it's never fully erased. And if I'm honest, as I walk through my neighborhood and I look at all the political signs, if I'm honest, sometimes my first thought as I'm walking by is, oh, okay, friend, friend, foe, foe, friend, uh, uh, undecided. I don't know if I like that guy or I don't like the guy. And I think if we were taking a walk with Jesus, I think he would walk by and he would say, I died for that guy. I died for that family. That single mom, I died for her. That widow who's alone, I died for him. Because Jesus looks at life through the lens that they are created in the image of God and they're separated and he died for them to bring them back. God wants our first thought that, to be ever, that whoever lives in the homes in your neighborhood is made in the image of God and they're either, they're either rightly related to God or they are not. Those are the two options. And if they're, rightly related, if they're rightly related to God, I want to go and encourage them. How can I spur them on to greater and greater uh, love and faithfulness? And if they're not rightly related to God, who they vote for is the least of my concerns because they're headed to hell. And I need to engage my neighbors with the gospel, I need to try and build a relationship, try and build a bridge to them and not get 
pulled off sides by who they may or may not be voting for. I want to try and share with them the hope that I have in the gospel. And here's the thing. Once I've had that conversation and they know where I stand, I don't need to jerry-rig it into every other conversation henceforth. I can be their friend. I can love them. And as God gives me opportunity, which God will give you opportunity because he wants them to know Jesus far more than you and I do, he will give you opportunity. You gently salt and light. You apply the gospel to the wounds of their life. Three, we should remember that not only, or first, that there is an internal difference between those in the kingdom of darkness, those in the kingdom of light, that in spite of those differences, all humanity is made in the image of God. And third, that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Citizens of heaven should remember that patience and gentleness and kindness is the thing that moves people towards repentance. Here's a passage that I go to a lot when I'm engaging with people that are far from God. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance that's going to lead to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. Kindness and gentleness and love. Not your snippy social media posts. Not the election signs in our yard. Not escalating conversations. is what God's going to use to bring people to himself. Remember, those who don't need Jesus, Paul just says, they've been captured in the snare of the devil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that they're blind. And so you've got people in your world that can't see, and they're trapped. They can't escape. And so we want to move towards them in kindness. And we can't forget that that's how we were. We were blind. We were once chained, as Paul writes in Titus, for we ourselves... We were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and hated one another. But when the goodness and the kindness of God our Savior appeared, often in the form of a neighbor or a friend or somebody he bumped into, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration of his, uh, and renewal of the Spirit. So you may be thinking, Leventhal, are you just asking me to be nice? Like, the world is on fire, and you want me to bake them cookies? Is that what you're advocating for? And I would say no. What God's Word is advocating for is that we jump in in civil, Christ-honoring discourse with our neighbor. Okay? God wants us to love like Jesus loved. He wants us to engage thoughtfully, patiently, taking the long run. He wants us to sacrifice and serve our neighbors. That's what God's calling us. He's saying, hey, don't seek your own welfare in the city. Seek the welfare of the city and its inhabitants. That's what God's calling us to. Now, how do citizens of heaven relate to other citizens of heaven? So we need to recognize that no matter what differences we might have in life, if you are a fellow citizen of heaven, we have the one thing in common that matters. And really, all of the New Testament epistles deal on some level with this reality. You've got Jews and you've got Gentiles. And in Christ, those two people uh, were going to come together under one family. And it's hard for us to appreciate how difficult that was and what a significant 
call that the gospel produced in the lives of Jews and Gentiles. And they struggled deeply to do that well, which is why most of your New Testament epistles deal with this idea of Jews and Gentiles getting along under the body of Christ. Paul, in his passage in Ephesians, after he describes how the Gentiles, those who were, were not Jews, were, were separated from the covenants and the promises of God, Paul writes that, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Like the church in Ephesus, we have family members in this body that have come to Jesus from very different backgrounds, as diverse as Jew and Gentile was in the first century. And so they come into the church, they come to know Jesus with different perspectives on a lot of issues in life. But the one thing we have in common, the most important thing we have in common, is that Jesus Christ died for us. And that makes you my brother and my sister. That's the thing that makes us family. And when it comes to issues where there are multiple God-honoring perspectives to a topic, we need to engage thoughtfully, honorably, recognizing that, that we, can't, we, can't, um, we can't waffle on issues of the gospel. We can't waffle on issues of sin, okay? But when there are other topics, and there's a lot more of these other topics than there are, I think, these core topics, we need to allow for diversity in our unity, even when we disagree. And look, there's diversity on a lot of topics. Part of living in relationship with other citizens of heaven, other members of the family, is learning to distinguish with time, with greater and greater clarity, that which is core to the gospel, that which is really, really important, and that which is like tertiary, which there's a lot of different perspectives on. we got to learn how to distinguish between those three things. And we have community groups in this church that are threatening to blow up over things like, what's the best way to educate your kids? Homeschool, public, private. We have groups that are struggling over things like how much should you spend on a car? We have groups that are struggling on um, what's the right way to respond to COVID? And when it comes to this election over things like is it okay to vote third party? Should we build a wall? What's the right type of tax legislation? And on and on. We have groups that are struggling over these side issues that are not core to the gospel. They're not clear sin issues. They're, they're issues where people can have a variety of God-honoring perspectives. And we're, 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 some of us are busting at the seams. So what do you do if you disagree on one of these topics? Well, you pray. You go to Scripture together. You see if this is a chapter and verse sin issue. If it's a sin issue, we call for repentance. And we ask God to provide light into that sin issue. And if it's not a sin issue, we ask questions. We listen. We listen some more. I make sure that I can articulate your perspective and, and the reasons for your perspective. And if I still disagree, I let it go. I don't need to win every decision, okay? Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Are you and I, are we being fools to other members of the body of Christ? It's possible 
to have different God-honoring perspectives on how to solve for immigration, on how to behave during COVID, how to think about third-party voting and other topics. Community is not a democracy. You don't go around the room and take a vote. Okay, should I, should I, should I? Yes, 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 no, great, I got a green light. That's not what community is. We don't vote on like whether you should buy a car. You ask questions, you process, you look at God's word. How does God inform that decision? And then you trust that person to the Holy Spirit of Jesus who lives in them. You and I are not the Holy Spirit. And John, if you read the Gospel of John, John 18 is where Jesus' betrayal and his arrest start. And in John 18, uh, right before that, Jesus prays. And here's what Jesus prays right before he's arrested and betrayed, okay? Last prayers are lasting prayers. John 17, I don't ask for these only. He's praying only for those disciples. But I also for those who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, so that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you've loved them even as you loved me. So don't miss this. The very last prayer of our Savior before he was tortured and put to death on a cross was for unity. And the very last people Jesus prayed for were for the disciples and for those who would believe in him through them, which is us today. That's what Jesus prayed for. And two times in his prayer, he says that the reason I want there to be unity is that the world may know. Our ability to evangelize the lost is predicated on whether the church can get along. And my goodness, are we creating factions and divisions over tertiary issues? I want people to stumble over the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they don't like me because of that, that's okay. I'm good with that. But if they get mad at me because I've got a different perspective on immigration than they do, like, is that worth breaking fellowship for? No. The world, when the world sees Christians at war with each other over non-core issues, it gives them every reason to doubt that Jesus is who he says he is and that the gospel is the power of God to bring healing. As unity our unity as believers is one of our primary mechanisms for seeking the welfare of the citizens of the city. Now, as we land the plane, let me give you a couple of closing thoughts. One, we are not called to win the culture war, okay? That's not what God calls us to do. God calls the church to be salt and to be light, to restrain evil while we push out light through the way we talk to each other, the way we engage the lost. We are to be salt and light to promote that which is good and right and true, regardless of who's president. And then at the end of the day, you put your head on your pillow, you thank God for his sovereignty, you thank God for his goodness, that all of this is well within his view, and that he loves you. Two, history is full of seasons like this. I know we, we all keep hearing, and I know we're all getting tired head about it, like this is unprecedented, this is a pivot point in all human history. I just want to remind us that's not true. Now, you may say, well, like this is unprecedented for my lifetime. Fair. But that's why it's so important to go back and look at history to see that there have been seasons of life that are far worse than what we're running into leading up to this election. There's been pandemics and wars and uh, ungodly uh, dictators who have murdered millions, like there's been worse than what we're experiencing, okay? And I want to remind you that when Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his guys, and he says, hey, who do you think I am? And Peter says, hey, I, 
you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, you know what? You're right. boy. That is who I am. And, and Peter, thank God that he revealed that to you. And guess what, Peter? You're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the bride of Christ. We don't need to panic about this election. No matter who's in office, the gates of hell will not prevail against the bride of Christ. Everybody take a deep breath and remember that God is sovereign. His bride is not going to be stopped. Jesus wins. Number three, we play the long game. And we need the Holy Spirit to constantly remind us that to constantly help us avoid thinking things like, man, things will sure get better after COVID or things are going to get better after the election or things will get better when I get this promotion or when I get married or whatever, 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 okay? Things, when we think things are going to get better after whatever, that's a problem. Why do I say that? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is recounting all of the faithfulness of godly men and women in history, okay, who, who lived and they died without experiencing the full fulfillment of the things God promised. And here's what the writer says. These, all these men and women he's been talking about, they all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak like that, that is, people who say, I'm a stranger and I'm an exile, or people who speak like that, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, a different homeland. For if they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, if they think about that passport that had been cut up, they could have gone and returned. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a, a city. Look, the better that all of us in our deepest core, the better that we're all looking for, the better is not going to be fully realized until Jesus comes back. And so until then, we want to seek the welfare of our city and know that we can experience peace and joy and fulfillment and love and laughter on earth while we wait. But that thing, that thing that's inside of you that longs for something better, it's not coming after the election. It's not coming after COVID. It's coming when King Jesus comes back. And let me just remind you, let me just greatly probably discourage the Apostle John. Let me just reduce the book of Revelation to you. Like, here's how it goes. Things get worse. Jesus comes back. Jesus wins. Okay? That's your book of Revelation. Now, you should still read it because it's awesome. But that's your cliff notes, okay? And then lastly... Election day is Tuesday, November 3rd. And hear me, what, what we do on election day matters, okay? But what we do between today and November 3rd matters more. What you do on November 4th and the, and the years and weeks and months that following are more important. Don't get hung up on a day as though our world pivots on uh, the election day, because it doesn't. We are called to be salt and light as we do all that we can do to restrain evil to expand the kingdom of God while we wait for our true, our better home. Father, I just want to thank you for your word, which is so instructive, which is so helpful. 
and giving us guidance, not just on how we should think about this election in a couple weeks, but gives us everything we know, we need to know to be reconciled to you. I pray for my friends in this room, my friends who are watching, that the peace of Christ that you've promised in Colossians 3 would reign in our hearts. I pray there wouldn't be anxiety over this election. I pray we remember that we are citizens of heaven. You have saved us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us. I pray that as we walk our neighborhoods, as we engage with coworkers, as we engage with other friends, we would be less concerned about who they're voting for and more concerned about who their king is. Is it King Jesus or is it somebody else? Help us to be salt. Help us to be light. Help us to restrain evil as best we can while we wait for you to come get us. In Jesus' name, amen.